another episode of Have You Got That Right, the podcast of the Caston Centre for Human Rights Law based at Monash University. I'm your host, Maria Smith, manager of the Caston Centre. And I'm Sarah Joseph, director of the Caston Centre. I'm Caroline Henkel, senior lecturer in law at the Monash University. I'm Azada Dasyari, also a deputy director of the Caston Centre. And I'm Tanya Penovich, also a deputy director of the Caston Centre. Great. Today we are going to begin with a discussion about protest in all of its marvellous forms. Then we'll move on to a chat about some current human rights topics before finishing off with our human rights hero or villain of the week. And did you see that, where we each bring up one thing that's caught our attention recently, whether about human rights or otherwise. So to start off with protest for today, one of the things I love about the Casson Centre, which is based here in the Monash Law Faculty, is that we have so many academics who have this incredibly diverse range of research interests. So for that reason, last week, Azada, you, Maria, Maria O'Sullivan and Douglas Guilfoyle, a couple of other academics here in the Law Faculty, convened a roundtable of Law Faculty academics on the, on the law of protest. And it was really inspiring for me to sit there and listen to so many different aspects of protest being discussed. And it was kind of mind-boggling how many different ways we came at it. Can you start us off by just giving us an overview of the, the topics that we talked about? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Marius. Doug, Maria and I have been really interested in the ways in which individuals and groups protest, the impact of their protests on law reform and the way in which the law regulates the ability of people to protest. Protest movements are, of course, not new, but we are living in a time where mass protests seem to be everywhere, you know, the Arab Spring mm. to the Women's March. And because of technology, we are increasingly aware of what's happening around the world too. So the roundtable was a first step in what we hope to be an ongoing project with more events and publications. We only had nine people presenting at the event, so it was by no means comprehensive. But the papers on the day ranged from Becky Badigal presenting on how couples in a heterosexual relationship protest lack of marriage equality during their wedding ceremonies in Australia, Stephen Gray's examination of how the Australian government attempts to regulate the International Workers Union's or the Wobblies anti-war protest during the First World War. Patrick Emerton and Jayani Najaranglam talked about the right to protest on the Australian Constitution. Uh, Maria discussed the duty to disobey unjust laws and Trump's immigration ban. And what was really interesting, I think, is that as a human rights lawyer going into this, I assumed that we would be getting paper after paper about free speech and the right to protest and all the wonderful things that come out of protest. But that wasn't necessarily the case. For example, Doug discussed the activist organisation Sea Shepherd and why some of their activities may not be lawful in a paper he and Jerry Nagsam have titled When is a Shepherd a Pirate? Mm-hmm. And Tanya, who is here with us today, and her research partner, Ronley Sifras, discussed safe access zones around abortion clinics which limit protests. Hopefully we'll get to hear a little bit more about that. Tanya and Ronley pointed out that much of the protests they identified as being detrimental to the health and welfare of women was being carried out by church groups. But on the flip side, uh, my paper was on the church sanctuary movement and protests against draconian immigration policies by faith groups that have aimed to protect a very vulnerable group. So there was a, a... big range there. Caroline, who is here today as well, talked about dishonouring the Australian flag and an issue I hope we'll uh, get a chance to discuss further if we get time was Jamie Woldwich's uh, paper on sentencing of politically motivated offend- offenders in Victoria. Mm. Yeah, that was really interesting about you know how judges approach someone who's committed a criminal act in the process of yeah. you know, uh, exercising their political speech. That's right. Sarah, we are a human rights centre, so as we jump into this discussion, let's answer the obvious human rights question. Is there a human right to protest? Yeah. 
Okay, good. Oh, well, thanks. That was great. So thanks for listening would you, today. Would you like a bit more information? Sure, yes, I would. Yeah, go. Okay. Given the vast ranges of types of protest, there clearly could be a range of human rights which are relevant, but the most obvious ones would be freedom of expression. Protest normally involves, uh, it normally involves words, i.e. speech, and so that comes within the realm of freedom of speech. But even actions like waving a banner around or something like that can also come within the realm of free speech. And uh, another one would be freedom of assembly. If you should assemble, if you should engage in a demonstration or a march, that's part of freedom of assembly. Uh, And even joining together in groups to protest, that's also freedom of association. So those are the obvious human rights which are relevant. Mm. Mm. I I would add another one, I guess, would be discrimination on the basis of political opinion. Um, Not all protests are about politics, but most are. And so you don't, if you, in fact, engage in a protest, uh, you shouldn't be punished because you've revealed a particular political opinion. Most human rights can be limited in international law, although not torture. Donald Trump, just note, that cannot be limited (laughs) under any circumstances. But the ones we're talking about today can be. For example, you can limit laws to um, protect national security or public order or morals. Tanya, you've done a lot of research with another of our academics, Romley Sifris, about what are known as abortion access zones. They prevent anti-abortion protesters from getting too close to clinics where they can infringe on women's rights. Um, But the zones themselves do limit the protesters' free speech rights, arguably. So um, I think it's a great way to explore these tensions. Can you tell us a little bit about them? Sure. So safe access zones are sometimes called buffer zones or Mm. bubble zones because they create a bubble around an abortion clinic within which no anti-abortion protesting can take place. So in in Australia, we now have safe access zones in four jurisdictions, Tasmania, Victoria, the ACT, and most recently, the Northern Territory. So our research to date has focused on the situation in Victoria. We've spoken with staff who work in clinics providing abortion services, and we've considered the impact of the protest on patients staff and others and the impact of the safe access zones which have now been operating in Victoria for just over a year. Yeah tell us a bit about how protesters go about um, you know protesting because you know in principle someone standing out the front of an abortion clinic you know exercising their free speech shouldn't be prevented from doing that so so what what was it about the way they were going about their protest that required these zones to be set up? Well, the way they were going about their protest was, um, in all cases, um, an uninvited insinuation of the protesters into into the the face and space of patients, staff and passers-by. So they would walk alongside or follow, sometimes chase patients. They would implore them uh, not to kill their baby, not to enter the slaughterhouse. Sometimes they'd be quite abusive. They'd they'd hand out leaflets um, and other props, including plastic fetuses. And um, these leaflets apparently contain frightening misinformation about abortion. So they'd routinely be told that they'd be rendered infertile, that they would develop breast cancer, that they would become mentally ill, that they would never recover, that abortion is something that no one ever recovers from that they'll have to live with this from for the rest of their lives and that they will ruin their relationships. People were followed, photographed, chased, threatened and shouted at. And, and we know that in one clinic uh, just over the border in New South Wales, women are routinely photographed 
and identified. And this is a practice of the helpers of God's precious infants who are a, a very active uh, protest group. So what would you say, can I ask um, how, how large are these zones, like the bubble zones? Um, like presumably it's to keep them away from the clinic or away from uh, the patients. And so how, how large are they? So in Victoria, they are 150 metres, 150 metres around the clinic. So they can still protest, but they have to be 100 and, and yell out all of those things, but they're 150 metres away. Yes, they're 150 metres away. And so one of the things that we've discovered is is the effect of the, the buffer zone in Victoria is that it's depersonalised the protest. So the protesters are visible, certainly in East Melbourne, where they have been extremely active for, for more than 20 years. They are present. Uh, they they tend to lurk around the Jollymont station, but they were very adept at identifying people going into the clinic. They would approach um, women trying to get out of their cars and stop them from getting out of their cars and, and insinuate themselves into their, their face and space, and now they cannot do that. And so going back to Marius's original question, that this is clearly a limit to the right to protest, to the yes. rights I was talking about, right yes. to freedom of assembly, right to expression and so on. Yes. Um, so what what would you say is the countervailing right in, in these instances? Okay, well, well there, there are a number of them. So, so clearly freedom of speech may be limited to respect the, the rights and reputations of others and for the protection of public health. And, and I believe that all of these aspects come into play. So the rights in question include the right to equality and non-discrimination, the right to privacy, the prohibition on cruel, inhuman and degrading treatment, the right to health, and, and also this protest has been characterised by clinic staff as a form of violence against women. And there is a jurisprudential basis for, for arguing that point, I believe. It's a, it's a form of protest that is, is targeted at a single medical service that is accessed only by women. Yeah, I'd add that there's issues there of security of the person, which involves, you know, being stalked and being harassed and things like that. And that's interesting that you should raise that because there is a, a real safety concern associated with this protest. Some staff have reported that they feared being followed home. In, in one regional area, it was reported that protesters who like to carry pigs' uteruses around their necks and wheel them around in prams would throw pigs' blood or red paint at doctors' houses and contact children's schools where they would shame their parents for being murderers. Just a final question on this issue. To your knowledge, are these laws being respected? Uh, well, that's a really interesting question because last year Kathleen Club, a Ringwood mother of 13, was, was charged with being inside an access zone mm -hmm. and she has made a number of statements about taking it all the way to the High Court. Caroline, uh, we're seeing a rollback of protest laws here in Australia that I think is much harder to justify than abortion access zones, um, you know, a, a different indeed really. The most high profile has been the Tasmanian Act, known as the Tasmanian Protest Act colloquially, but there have also been some laws targeting protesters who wear face coverings in Victoria. There were some move-on laws here that have since been repealed. What's going on? Well, probably the most um, significant piece of legislation is the Workplaces Bracket Protection from Protesters Close Bracket Act, which was passed by you can the... never have enough brackets. <laughs> <laughs> passed yeah. by the um, Tasmanian government recently and which is currently the subject of a High Court challenge by um, former Greens leader Bob Brown. And um, what this act does, it's directly targeting at rebuilding Tasmania's forest industry. 
And in order to do that, it places some restrictions on people's, if you like, right to protest on business premises, which would include logging um, and forestry operations. So it places extremely heavy fines on protesters who enter business premises or do acts on business premises where those acts prevent or hinder the operation of, of those of that business. And it's interesting because the law is directly targeted at protesters and protester is defined in the act as a person who you know, undertakes an activity based on their opinion or belief in respect of a political, environmental, social, cultural or economic issue. So this is a deliberate target of those who would engage in protest activity. And, and as I mentioned, the, the impetus for this was the, um, the logging industry in Tasmania, which, as we know, has been a controversial issue in Tasmania for a very long time. And also at the national level, um, as it are, um, we've seen the federal government use um, sort of the Border Force um, Act to uh, tamp down dissent in yeah. our immigration system. So uh, under the Border Force Act, it's an offence for an Australian Border Force employee to make uh, a record of or disclose any information obtained by the person in their capacity as an employee. So it really... Uh, limits what people that have worked for the Australian Border Force can say about what they've witnessed in the detention centres. In October last year, uh, Fitzroy Legal Centre and Doctors for Refugees took the Commonwealth to the High Court to challenge the legitimacy of the law. And before that could happen, uh, their health professionals were given an exclusion. So under the Act, they're no longer immigration and border protection workers. But Everyone else who works uh, in this area is affected by that uh, legislation. And uh, it's, it's particularly concerning because uh, we do know how much harm is being done to detainees and uh, in these detention centres. Yeah. So to, so to kind of you know, bracket them together a bit, you know, it, it's, it, we're using sort of the pretext of national security or the rights of businesses to run their business unhindered to, to, to tamp down the right to protest. How sort of valid are these claims and how, you know, yeah, how would you critique that sort of approach? Well, it comes back to proportionality. I mean, businesses do have, you know, um, well, people who run businesses can, you know, have rights to work and do have certain economic rights. But from what I, you know, from what I personally know of the Tasmanian law, it just seems completely disproportionate at mm. the end of the day there is a right to protest against businesses. Human rights are much more effective in public spaces rather than private spaces, so mm. they're much less effective on the premises of, say, a logging company or something like that. But you are entitled to, you know, under human under international human rights law, you should be able to protest, and that can cause some disruption, not extreme disruption, but some disruption to the business. That's mm. often the point. Yeah. And there are already laws about trespass and about besetting premises. Mm. But what this does is it particularly targets those engaging in protest activity and raises those penalties significantly where the, the protest activity impacts on businesses. So arguably, you know, there is there are already statute statutory offences that would, you know, adequately proscribe this kind of conduct, but there's certainly an attempt to deter people from engaging in protests that targets business. And I believe this is the stated aim of the Tasmanian government when they introduced the legislation, to try and deter this protest from taking place in the first place. Yeah. When I think about um, corporate conduct that, that chills public participation or, or public debate, and I think about Tasmania, it's hard to forget the, um, the Guns 20 litigation of 2004, 
which um, was, was brought against 17 individuals and, uh, and three community organisations and continued for, for around about five years, costing large sums of money. Um, now that, that litigation, that type of litigation is sometimes called SLAP litigation, so strategic litigation against public participation. I have no doubt that the guns case was a slap suit. Um, it did have a chilling effect on democratic participation in the state of Tasmania and did silence public debate and protest. Um, and, and when I think of the guns case, I also think of the, the most long-running case in English history, which of course is the McLeibel mm -hmm. suit, which was a defamation case, so using defamation law to, to stifle public participation. Now, you might remember that that case went all the way to the European Court of Human Rights, where they found that there was a breach of the right to free speech and the right to a fair trial because of the convoluted English justice system and defamation laws. Mm. And what ties these together is that they're all different ways of, you know, tamping down, as you say, you know, with the same aim of tamping down on certain types of free speech. There's a slightly more a general law in that sense in Victoria, which is the masking law to stop people from being masked at protests. Can you tell us a bit about that one, Caroline? Right, so this is actually a bill that is currently before, I believe, the Legislative Council, the Upper House in Victoria. And the law, it's an omnibus bill that seeks to make various amendments, but one that's perhaps of most interest to, to the law of protest is that it provides the police with additional powers where an area has already been declared a controlled area for the purpose of weapons offences, which is a pre-existing provision. It gives the police additional powers in those designated areas to direct a person wearing a face covering to remove their face covering or leave the area immediately, and failure to do so is an offence. And what this arose from, you might rem remember about a year ago, there were some clashes in Coburg in Melbourne, one, uh, quite a multicultural suburb, between neo-Nazi groups and anti-fascist groups. And in that protest, there was a lot of media coverage of people wearing facial coverings and engaging in sort of scuffles with each other and with the police. So there was some pressure on the government to introduce these, these so-called anti-masking laws. And they're modelled on Section 60AA of the United Kingdom Criminal Justice Act. And what's kind of alarming to me in particular about this is not only do people wear masks and face coverings as a form of, you know, theatre. You can, you can all remember, you know, going to protests and seeing people wearing sort of elaborate costumes. But also in the context of these recent clashes between neo-Nazi and anti-fascist groups, the anti-fascist um, protesters are wearing these masks for their protection, not only from the neo-Nazis, which have been, you know, photographing and vilifying them online in, in a very dangerous way, but also... Um, masks, if you like, or prote facial protection has been used not only by protesters but also by journalists as a form of um, protection against chemical weapons because mm -hmm. around the same time we've also seen Victoria Police using a lot more capsicum spray in protest activities than we've ever seen before. The last year or two has seen an incredible um, amount of um, use of capsicum spray and the legislation says um, specifically that the police, you know, they can only direct you to remove that mask or, or the facial covering where you are covered with the intention to conceal your identity 
or protect yourself from the effects of crowd controlling substances <laughs> such as capsicum spray, which I find remarkable. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that, uh, yeah, that you can't do that. And I think an interesting flip side to that is that in a lot of protests um, in Australia, but also um, in the world, there's been a lot of criticism of police for failing to have name tags. And so that's kind of the, you know, it's kind of they, they um, unmask themselves, as it were, or mask themselves by, you know, mm. by not being identifiable and they should be accountable for how they police these things. And, uh, and it's an interesting, interesting counterpoint, I think. That's right. I mean, we can all remember the Ombudsman's report following the World Economic Forum protests of 2000 in which the police were castigated for removing their, their name tags and numbers um, when the, the, the anti-riot you know, police officers came in and broke up that blockade. So this goes back a long mm. way. And police still, um, in certain situations, will not wear any identifying you know, badges or numbers and so on. And at the same time, we now know that police are engaged in quite heavy surveillance of certain sort of left-wing protesters. And the facial recognition technology that they've begun to use is not even regulated. Mm. So we have this really one-sided approach. And yeah, know, that was just a great idea of Facebook, which they thought was fun. And, um, <laughs> and lo and behold, it can be used for all sorts of purposes. And this is why none of who us knew? use Facebook. Who knew? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, who knew that you know being able to make someone identifiable would make them identifiable? <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to move on um, to. Uh, a different element of protesting. We mentioned earlier one of our academics, Jamie Walvish, gave a fascinating presentation on how the courts have treated political protesters who've broken the law when it comes to sentencing. So he sort of documented that there's different ways that judges of mm. have treat them, and you know, to use two crude, crude categories, and he was much more sophisticated than this, but yeah. some judges see the fact that you were breaking the law for a political purpose as a mitigating factor, meaning you should get a shorter sentence or a more lenient sentence, and some judges go the other way and actually see it as being worse because you were being politically motivated. It raises the issue of whether it's acceptable, you know, from a moral or legal point of view, to ever cause damage as a part of a protest. And Sarah, there's some really interesting, you know, issues with damage, which have not physical damage, but other types of damage that have been caused to, say, businesses that I think are really interested in, in, in exploring this issue. I think uh, Jamie's point about different types of sentences seems relevant in the context of... of uh, it was a different type of protest, and I'm afraid I can't remember the name of the man involved, but there was a man a few years ago who released a fake press release from ANZ about Whitehaven Coal. And uh, when he did this, uh, you know, I think it was a statement from ANZ saying they weren't going to fund coal mines or f uh, from, you know, fake ANZ indicating they weren't going to fund Whitehaven Coal. And the response to this was for Whitehaven Coal's share price to drop. And so that's some damage, which I'll come back to. But what I also found really interesting when that happened was a number of politicians who came out immediately saying, we've got to throw the book at this guy. Yeah. Like, he's breached, <laughs> he's breached uh, you know, securities exchange laws and so on. And they were particularly outraged because, you know, he committed white-collar crime for... a a non-white-collar reason, because mm. they don't do that when someone has done mm. insider training. They, they don't come out and say, oh, we've got to throw the book at this guy. Yeah. And yeah. I found that interesting. Now, I've got a feeling, in the end, the book wasn't thrown at him. Um, he was found guilty. I mean, that's one thing about civil disobedience. You actually you take the consequences and, and, and many people are prepared to do it. That's what, you know, they did, um, you know, on the bus protests in America. Mm. But just on the point of damage, I mean, look, there's all sorts of of um, damage uh, that can arise from protests. Uh, I mentioned that Whitehaven coal one. Another similar one was um, a stunt by a group called the Yes Men 
who were who actually do a lot of impersonations of people for protest purposes. And in this particular instance, they appeared on Channel 4 in the UK as putative representatives of Dow Chemical. And they promptly announced that Dow Chemical was finally going to pay proper compensation for the Union Carbide um, explosion from 1984 in Bhopal in India. And sadly, the reaction to this was for Dow Chemical's price to drop. So that doesn't say a lot about human nature. Let's do something good so the price drops. But secondly, I guess there was damage there. There was damage to the people who sold wrongly. I think the damage to Dow Chemical was fleeting. But there was, I guess, some damage to shareholders who wrongly sold. I'd guess that someone watching the market that closely was probably an institutional shareholder, so that damage would have been minimal. They would have just bought back in. I suspect, you know, everyone was lamenting the so-called mums and dads shareholders, but they don't tend to sort of be watching. Whoever they are, they're not watching. They're the most important shareholders. Yeah, but they're not watching. You know, they probably didn't find out about it until later. Hmm. Probably the potentially worst issue there was maybe false hope given to the people of Bhopal. And that was something that the Yes Men were heavily criticised for. And what they did in response was travel to Bhopal. And where, you know, at le- it is their footage, but I presume it's true footage, where they were kind of greeted as heroes. So even though people said, look, we were disappointed when we found out it was a hoax, <laughs> they were actually very happy that it had happened. They thought it was a black eye for, Bo- for Dow Chemical and they were glad for Bhopal to suddenly get in the news again after all this time. Yeah. So, I mean... Yeah, well, look- it was an epic level of trolling. Uh, Yes, but, you know, I mean, damage, I mean, sometimes, I mean, you know, Tanya's talked about um, abortion zones, there can be extreme damage. I mean, of course there can be protests which, you know, end up in riots and end up with people getting seriously hurt. I mean, that's, you know, a limit to human rights. But uh, in some cases, personally, I think, you know, some damage is sustainable. And, you know, you can go either way on on these issues, on the ANZ issue, on the, um, I tend to be a little bit more forgiving. Yeah. I also think it's really important to recognise that most protests doesn't cause any damage and that there isn't any any of those negative consequences mm. that the media often likes to focus mm. on. Mm. I think where we buy into the mm. portrayal of protests mm. when when we kind of concede something that perhaps we should be recognising as not being as much of a reality as is often painted. Yeah, I mean, it's well known that the press will look for the most crazy-looking pro- or aggressive-looking yeah. protesters, mm. and if there's a spat or a fight, they'll find it. And, That's you know, right. that will often look like it was the whole protest when, in fact, it's like 1% of the protest. I'm interested, Sarah, in your the examples you give of damage because, you know, they're sort of using the media, and, of course, you know, a hot issue now is the, the role of social media... In protest, there's been a lot of debate about it. Just really briefly, can you sort of tell us about, you know, to what extent protest manifests itself online and whether or not it's successful or, you know, worthwhile, or, or is it just kind of Clayton's armchair activism, as they say? Oh, look, there are some people, you know, there are some worries that maybe people have become a bit more sentient in their protests that they think pressing like on Facebook is just as effective as going and actually joining a protest, and that seems unlikely. But you can have, you know, mass, like almost like a mass scream online. So uh, with a hashtag and so, you know, such as these, you know, hashtag bring them home or something like that. It certainly Mm. sends a message. Um, Obviously, so far that hasn't that hasn't or bring them here, actually, uh, that uh, that, you know, actually hasn't been successful because they haven't been brought here yet. But I think brought a lot of attention to the issue. Yeah. Forced the government to respond. Yeah. Yeah. And that's often, you know, the first step in, say, a successful protest. Mm. But the other thing social media can do, and I think probably most famously seen in the Arab Spring, but certainly in other instances as well, is it's a great tool of organisation. 
it's a great tool of finding like-minded people. That definitely is what happened in, say, the Arab Spring, and you know, and then organising where people should be. And I guess that's particularly relevant in a country such as Egypt or Tunisia, where you know the actual media or where you know other means of communication might be a lot more state-controlled. But it is, you know, it is a useful way of communicating both before and even during a protest. Mm. So, you know, in that sense, it's, you know, it's technology, it's neutral, it can be good or bad, but it Mm. certainly can be used for, you know, protest purposes. And I think for people who are not used to going to protest, don't have connection to people who protest, Mm. using a hashtag Mm. is a way of participating Mm. in something and maybe taking that on as an identity as well. And and I think that does make people a lot more likely to participate in other ways too. So it's a a good democratic way of bringing a lot more people in, I think, than would otherwise be available to them. Yeah, I mean, what I don't know is, like, is the person pressing like? Are they someone who'd never go to a protest, in which case pressing like (laughs) is, um, or, you know, the hashtag bring them here or whatever, is at least one way of participating when they wouldn't have participated before. They would have just had private thoughts that, you know, only their friends knew. Or is it distracting people who otherwise would go? I suspect it's probably both, but I actually think it's probably making the concentric circles bigger and therefore including people who don't really want to attend, but for whatever reason... And just but just think, look, you know what? I'm with you. I'll use this hashtag. I'll I'll like this protest. There was a protest. If you remember the women's march uh, of the day after Donald Trump's inauguration, I think it was there where there was a, a counter protest in support of Donald Trump. Right. Um, and protesting the protesters. I think there were four people there. <laughs> wow. Um, and the reason I bring that up is because uh, if you look at Black Lives Matter, I mean, that's an incredibly successful online movement. I mean, incredibly successful at bringing mm. pressure on the issue of incarceration of black people in America, but also other issues related to um, black and the people. And shootings of black people. Yep. You know, both online and in more traditional protests, you can find examples of really successful protests mm. and examples of ones that really haven't worked. So let's bring this uh, around full circle to finish off this discussion on protest. And I want to do that by latching onto something Azita mentioned a little bit earlier about it depends on who you are sometimes Mm. as to how you're treated. But let's look at this a little bit broader. Like, you know, it's often all of us sort of consider the issue of whether a certain type of protest is, is acceptable and whether we should limit it based on what we think of that protest. So, you know, you might think, Black Lives Matter protests are bad, but Tea Party protests represent the struggles of real people, or flag burning is bad, but racially offensive speech is a noble expression of un-PC real speech. Uh, So, you know, when working out how to protect the rights of speech and assembly, can we be too swayed sometimes by whether we think the speech that we're talking about is good or bad? I think we definitely are. Mm. And um, personally, I think in that respect, the law has to be neutral. I mean, definitely when, you know, there's there's speech I prefer to other speech, there's protests I prefer to other protests. How I think about those protests in my head is definitely influenced by that. But one would hope the law and human rights law, you know, do- doesn't favour left wing over right wing or the opposite. Clearly there can be, you know, um, when you mentioned sort of racial vilification, I guess if you're marching in the street and engaging in hate speech, hate speech is a red line that's been drawn by human rights law. But there's a lot of perhaps racist sentiments which fall short of hate speech and much as I don't think anyone in this room really supports that sort of protest it it is still a protest in terms of all the human rights we mentioned before Mm. which reminds me of that quote I might not like what you have to say but I will defend till my death 
you're right to say it. Voltaire. Was, well, it was attributed yeah. to Voltaire, who apparently, apparently yeah, yeah. never said it. Yes. Yeah, no, right. No, it's it's my favourite quote, Stacey. <laughs> yeah, so we don't know who said it. Right. No, we do, it? we do. I did find out a while ago. I'd have to re-Google it. But um, it was a woman who wrote about Voltaire. And oh, if you find it, I'll put it on the I'll put it on the podcast page when we uh, when we get this podcast <laughs> up. All right, I want to move on to um, some human rights news now for this week. And there's a couple of things that have happened here in Australia, so we're going to have a little Australian focus. Both very related. The first one was, or the more recent one, in fact, was that this week Peter Dutton, uh, the immigration minister, has introduced legislation that would enable him to overrule the Administrative Appeals Tribunal when it grants citizenship where he doesn't think that that grant of citizenship is in the national interest. And, you know, his argument is, oh, it's just an extension of the power to grant and cancel visas. So, you know, as it, what do you think of this? Uh, it's extremely concerning. Uh, we already know that the Minister for Immigration and Border Protection has more power than any other politician. Uh, we, he has enormous amount of discretion. And to give him and anyone who may follow him the power to make decisions about citizenship and take that decision making away from an independent tribunal is something we should all be very, very worried about. And of course the government's also trying to introduce a whole heap of other measures which are going to affect some of the most vulnerable people in our community. The changes to the citizenship tests include things like um, Something that's been getting a lot of media attention are the changes to English language requirements in the country so that now you will need to pass a test that's approximately equivalent to a band six in an IELTS exam, um, a thousand word reading and comprehension exam, 40 questions that you must complete in 60 minutes, two essays, a 30 minute listening test and a 15 minute speaking exam which is a very, very high bar that discriminates against anyone who doesn't come from an English background or has suffered perhaps trauma or disrupted education and can't necessarily access the resources as well to learn the language quickly. Now, the government does offer 510 hours of free English tuition, but research shows that's five years short of what the research, uh, what is required to reach English language competency. So this is very troubling already with there is a English requirement in the current test uh, which is much easier than what they're proposing but the failure rate for that uh, is at 1.4% overall but refugees fail that at 8.8%. Uh, so the easier test is already discriminating against some of the most vulnerable people. This harder test is going to make it really, really difficult. Mm. Residency requirements as well. We used to be able to become an Australian citizen if you were lived in Australia for four years and had um, been a permanent resident for one year and they're going to change that to four years, which is of course going to affect people who are on the kind of protection visas that allowed them to get permanent residency later. Mm. And I want to give a shout out to our friends at Liberty Victoria who released a report recently called Playing God, which was about the issue of the minister accruing more and more power to make decisions that would normally be left to the courts. The other issue that came up this week, or last week, was on Manus Island. There was a court case that was settled by the Commonwealth 
who agreed to pay um, a class action group of asylum seekers on Nauru $70 million to settle the claim um, that it had breached its duty of care to them by holding them in substandard conditions. Manus Island. Oh, did I say Nauru? Yeah. Did I? Sorry, Manus, yeah. At this point, a special shout-out to our advisory board member, Fiona Forsyth, who was one of the barristers on the plaintiff's legal team. Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, it was a pretty amazing res- um, result. Of course, uh, having settled the claim, Peter Dutton then came out and spat the dummy in the aftermath. Tell us a little bit about a little bit more about what happened. As well, I'll tell you a little bit about the case rather than Peter Dutton's comments because we shouldn't probably <laughs> yeah. give that too much time. Um, so the class action was uh, commenced in December 2014 in the Supreme Court of Victoria and they settled on the day when the case was due to start. It's approximately $70,000 with around 20, sorry, 70 million with <laughs> a few more zeros than I have here, um, with around um, and a little bit more for legal costs as well, but it's going to be around $35,000 per person, which is, which is a wonderful result. But what is more concerning is that we don't have a decision that makes the Commonwealth uh, liable. So the settlement agreement was an admission of liability from the government. They're still saying that it's PNG rather than they who are responsible. And sadly, this isn't going to change the government's stance on the approximately 860 men who remain on Manus Island and all the other people that are on Nauru at the moment as well. I think it's really important to remember that our policies took the lives of at least three innocent men that came to seek our protection on Manus Island. We know a whole heap of people, at least 60 people who have been seriously injured on Manus Island. There have been allegations of rape and the finding that the detention is torture or cruel or inhumane or degrading treatment by the UN Special Rapporteur on torture. So, I mean, whilst we should be celebrating this decision, the, this policy of yeah, they're well, sorry, the mm. settlement. Australia spent $10 billion on offshore processing over three years. This is change behind the couch for the Australian government. And what we really want is for the men to be brought here more than anything else. Great, well said. All right, uh, to our, um, my favourite section, human rights hero or villain of the week. I'm going to uh, go around starting with you on the far side, Tanya. Who have you got? Have you got a hero or a villain? I've got a hero, and he's not really a human rights hero, but he's he's so apt to this discussion that I thought that I'd have to mention him. He's really an animal rights hero, and that's Laurie Levy, an indefatigable protester um, who is now about 75 and has been speaking for the ducks, um, <laughs> Lorax-like, for decades. So he is the campaign director for the Coalition Against Duck Shooting. He has been charged many times for being in a prohibited area and he brought uh, an action in the High Court uh, against the state of Victoria uh, a couple of decades ago after he was charged with being in a duck hunting area. He challenged the regulations under which he was charged, unsuccessfully, <laughs> I might say. But he, I believe, has um, his, his campaigning and protest activities have had a powerful influence on public debate in Victoria and all power to Laurie. 
Um, As gonna, a, uh, so, yeah. Sure. Um, it's not a hero of the week, but uh, if you're feeling depressed about protests, I recommend reading Rebecca Solnit, and, um, who is famed for the ideas behind mansplaining. Um, <laughs> but she, she writes beautifully about how to protest in dark times and how to keep hope alive. So I highly recommend her, and, and she's a hero of mine. So, Sarah, who's your hero or villain? I've got a villain. And it's two villains, and that is the companies uh, Delta and Bank of America. And that's because I suppose I've also got a hero, which is Shakespeare in the Park mm. in Central Park in New York, which uh, has um, running a version of an updated version of Julius Caesar. Obviously, there's a lot of updated versions of Shakespeare plays. And, you know, who knew Shakespeare plays? Someone dies. And uh, instead of Julius Caesar, they actually have someone who looks mysteriously like Donald Trump, who's assassinated. And, of course, there's been an outrage on Twitter. And those two companies have um, responded by withdrawing sponsorship from uh, Shakespeare in the Park. And uh, all I can say is that apparently a few years ago, Delta sponsored a, um, a production where the person who was being assassinated looked a lot like Obama. And secondly, there's just been a lot of debate, uh, you know, spurred on by, you know, Donald Trump Jr. and stuff about, you know, this isn't art, it's political. I mean, hello. <laughs> so uh, I just think that was two companies just caving to, sens- to uh, views of censorship and being really quite gutless. All right. And uh, my human rights hero is the man we had here last week, Kevin Washburn. He was Obama's highest-ranked advisor on Indian affairs uh, in um, Obama's second term and um, had a pretty amazing track record of getting things done for Native American tribes. And one really interesting thing he said while he was out here when we were chatting to him was that Indian tribes sort of discuss the, the question of who has been the best president for Native Americans, Obama or Nixon. So, oh, wow. Yeah, very interesting. They're very fond of Nixon. Um, all right, so finally, to wrap up, uh, did you see that where we all briefly mentioned one thing that caught our eye, human rights or otherwise? So let me go first. Did you see that the um, Senate Republicans are trying to craft a Obamacare repeal bill in secret, not even um, 30, the 35 Republican senators or so who are not in the group drafting legislation know what's going to be in it. Wow. They're going to release it, basically rush it to the floor, pass it without a score from the office that tells you um, you know, what the effects of the bill are, called the CBO, and, mm. uh, and just get it into law. But they're doing that because it's so incredibly unpopular, but they've promised to do something, so that's the approach they're going to take. Sarah? Okay, uh, not every one of these is going to be about sport. But this one, again, <laughs> is going to be about sport, but this one's a little bit more serious than last time uh, because my team hasn't won recently. Uh, and that is, uh, all, you know, everyone from Victoria would know about the Essendon scandal and the Essendon performance-enhancing ha- drugs and how, uh, and how, you know, 34 players were banned for a year. I've always thought that the worst part of the whole Essendon scandal is not the performance-enhancing drug. I mean, obviously, they were deprived of their right to work for a year. But the health issue, I mean, in what universe is it acceptable that your employer can't tell you what they injected you with? Mm. And I always thought that was the worst, and therefore the unknown potential health consequences. And what happened last week is one of the former players, Nathan Lovett-Murray, has finally signalled that he is actually going to bring an action against Essendon and with, um, you know, uh, with regard to some issues with um, his newborn child who, and he uh, believes that this could be down to whatever it is he was injected with. Now, uh, and I just I think that's very interesting and I've always thought that that's the, you know, that, that's the real big scandal in this whole Essendon thing, the health issues or potential health issues rather than the performance enhancing drug issues. 
Caroline. Well, I was very interested to see that Madrid is the latest of several cities to adopt um, an anti-manspreading campaign on its public transport system. Oh, God, system. I've got to adjust the way I'm sitting here. Cross-legs. You're a disgrace. So Madrid has now got signs on their public transport that refer to El Manspreading. Yeah, um, no, and sounds a, much better. A picture of a, a man manspreading in a sort of an elephant isis-esque way across two seats so this was apparently um and there's a cross that's really helpful <laughs> this. This is apparently it's a very helpful graphic so this was actually introduced after madrid's city council's equality department and a feminist collective had got together to propose it so that's an interesting example of kind of community activism leading to some you know change in, in public spheres and so what it did was it actually um it's followed a couple of other initiatives. There's one in New York where there's a bunch of posters up on public transport that say, dude, stop the spread, please. <laughs> um, and, and then Seattle has got a purple octopus poster which depicts an octopus kind of spreading its way across a whole bunch of seats. Oh, that's I, just weird. Just as an aside, I've tried man spreading on public transport just to see the kind of looks I get, and one does get a few sort of side eyes if one does it especially um, as a rather petite person you know just to see exactly how much space you can take up but I've also you know upbraided fellow commuters and asked them to close their legs and they don't respond very well to it (laughs) funny that yeah that's a surprise (laughs) Tanya finish Um, us off well, just one item that, that's been prominent in the news this week is the, um, the, the fire in North Kensington in mm. London, the mm. Grenfell Tower fire, which raises issues around safe housing and the, the right to housing that I think uh, we're only really beginning to think about. Yeah. Mm. What, a hor- what a horrible, horrible tragedy. Terrifying. I've just got one more. We haven't actually mentioned the UK election. And um, I just want to say that that oh. is really starting to show that that the media doesn't that media doesn't really mean anything anymore in mm. elections. Mm. All right. Well, thanks everyone for coming in today, and thanks to everyone for listening. That's a wrap from us. If you enjoyed it, please be sure to rate the podcast as it helps others to find it, and also share it through your networks. Today's podcast was produced by Theo Keston. Thanks for listening. Oh.